Twelve men on a boat are besieged by a storm when suddenly they see among the lightning a spectral shape on the water. Hundreds of years earlier, a king throws a party that's interrupted by some thing that's not on the guest list, a ghostly hand in the air that scrawls a haunting message on the palace wall. Generations before that, another king with a tragic backstory sneaks into a darkened tent to inquire of the dead, not his parents or his late wife, but the very prophet who doomed his royal house. What are the scariest ghost stories in the Bible and why? Welcome back to Fantastical Truth, the not exactly quite spooky podcast from lorehaven.com in which we explore fantastical stories for God's glory. I'm E. Stephen Burnett, and I publish Lorehaven. I'm also the co-author of The Pop Culture Parent. And I'm Zachary Russell, and you can touch my hands and feet and see that I am real and not a ghost. And this is episode 185, What Are the Scariest Ghost Stories in Scripture? I think I've been mentioning on these episodes that uh, this month I've become not quite a fan of the spookiest, scariest, most grotesque Halloween decorations on people's front lawns that seem to be getting more detailed and less contextual. They have no context, no story, uh, nothing that frames the scary moments in the victory that we have ultimately in Jesus Christ, which ought to be the uh, the worldview of any uh, great uh, fantastical story. But Zach, I did see a yard the other day that made me think a little bit differently. It was a yard someone posted on Instagram. It was simply a snapshot or various snapshots from the fourth Harry Potter book, uh, The Goblet of Fire. And there's a dead body in there and everything. And there's a spooky, you know, vampire type creature, Lord Voldemort. And there's, you know, there's Harry. It's very, very detailed. And they got music playing and everything. And I loved it. And here's why. Because it fits into a larger story. And I know the larger story and legions of fans know the larger story. And in the larger story, good defeats evil. Uh, The hero sacrifices himself to save not only his friends, but his enemies. And so even that scene is redeemed. And I want to keep that uh, idea in mind as we go into the Bible and just realize, you know, there are scary stories in the Bible for a point. There is a larger context, which Christians call redemptive history. Uh, These scary moments served a purpose. They weren't just there to make you feel a vicarious thrill and then somehow cope with your pain by realizing there are scary monsters out there before you go to bed and then fail to sleep all night. No, there's points to the ghost stories in the Bible. Don't just go to the Bible looking for stuff to plug into your system. We'll talk about more about that in the concession stand. Yeah, I'll have to take your word for that, Stephen, because I've never read or watched the Harry Potter stories because I don't know what to think about magic and stories, but that's an upcoming episode. <laughs> now, seriously, I, I just haven't ever gotten around to it, but I've I've watched plenty of you know, scary movies and read some horror novels and even the Goosebumps books back in the day. But yes, I mean, you know, all of those stories are meant to, you know, frighten you in a sense of for entertainment value. But we're going to be talking about scary stories that actually have a holy purpose to them. And so I'm, I'm really looking forward to talking about that today. First, let's plunge into a non-scary story just released from Enclave Publishing. It's called The Mermaid's Tale of the first of a new series. Lachlan Adair has never fit in. The legs that she inherited as a result of her great-great-grandmother's curse make it impossible for her to belong under the sea. When her niece is also born without a tail, Lachlan is determined to save her from similar rejection by sending her to school in the only place in the undersea realm where legs are acceptable, the lost island of Atlantis. Enclave Escape presents The Mermaid's Tale, Chronicles of the Undersea Realm, Book 1 by Ellie Richmond, an exciting young adult adventure. 
It's on sale now wherever great YA books are sold, and it's also available as an audiobook on CD from Amazon in digital format on Audible, Spotify, and through libraries everywhere. You can learn more about The Mermaid's Tale from Enclave Publishing in our show notes for this episode, 185, or for this and all the other sponsor info in this show, go to lorehaven.com slash podcast sponsors. All right, Zach, I'm going to break early into our stash of Halloween candy in case you're the sort of Christian that gives it to trick-or-treaters. Your conscience doesn't bother you about that. We have a few tasty snacks here, uh, and I think I'll clear the air first about the word story. We have it right there in the title of this episode, and we've been already talking about it. Uh, In case uh, that trips up anybody who knows that Scripture does describe literal history, uh, just know that when we say story, we mean true story. It's just short for history which, of course, as we know with the Bible, is his story, capital H being Jesus Christ. Uh, it's a narrative. It's an account. And in fact, it's almost better to say the word account. I'll do that if I can, but because I have a very high view of stories, I'm not going to get uh, bothered about the language too much. And as I mentioned earlier, uh, we might uh, accidentally tap into uh, an interesting audience, uh, the sort of folks that you meet sometimes who really do want to talk about the Bible. And if you get too excited about that or think that maybe that person is a Christian, you might then discover that really they're just interested in the Bible because they want to find all of the spooky, scary stuff or the parts that seem to fit very well into their pet conspiracy theory about the aliens or the Nephilim. Uh, That's not how you read the Bible. The Bible isn't all about ghost stories. It's not all about the scary stuff or the aliens or the paranormal. The Bible is about Jesus Christ. He is the hero who doesn't just enable your interest in monsters Uh, he is the hero who defeats the monsters don't uh, confuse the tree for the forest Uh, the forest of the bible is all about jesus christ and don't go into the bible treating it like spirit halloween uh, looking for stuff to put into your (laughs) scary lawn display we must not chase down the monsters and ignore him so our purpose in uh, collecting these three stories and talking about a couple of others in the bible the scary stories uh, is not just the scariness itself but to glorify jesus yeah, I appreciate you saying that, Stephen. I mean, we when we want to talk about the fictional accounts in Scripture, we'd say the parables, and and that's what's you know interesting about the Bible is that it's true stories where people occasionally tell fictional stories, and we've covered that many episodes ago, episode fifty. If you're new to our podcast, go listen to that. It's why should Christians read fiction? Why do we need fiction? And then following episodes about sci-fi and fantasy, a whole series we've done. Uh, but yeah, Stephen, I was very much the person you described here a moment ago. Before I was a Christian, I actually enjoyed reading Revelation because I thought, man, this is an amazing, you know, it's like a disaster movie, but it's a, it's a, it's scary and it's exciting. And, uh, there was one particular element, uh, and, and this is how lost I was before I knew the Lord. There's this one passage in Revelation that says, despite all of these plagues, people who practiced sorcery and magic continued doing so, and they didn't repent. And when I read that as a teenager who was very wrapped up in the occult, I thought, oh, wow, cool. It's magic is is totally going to be everywhere, and it's going to be real, and it's going to be very popular. And so that's how messed up I was when I read that. And so it's very much what Paul talks about when he says, you know, the unspiritual man cannot discern the truths of scripture because they are spiritual, and he is unspiritual. And I'll I'll get into a little bit more of my story about that in our next episode. But yeah, for now, we're going to be talking about a couple of true but scary stories. Zach, you mentioned previous episodes in which we had dealt with uh, various genres and the purpose of fiction altogether. 
I'll also point out, I think the last time that we formally touched on uh, the horror genre and its justification in a Christian worldview was episode 132, Do Christians Really Need Horror? And then just a few episodes ago, we were talking with Mark Schooley specifically about the problem of evil and noble dark horror. So I've no doubt we're going to revisit that topic a few times over the lifetime of, uh, of this podcast. Let's, however, go now open your Bibles. Let's open our Bibles for the first story. What do you think? I think Zach and I have kind of uh, each chosen some contributions to this topic. And my chapter is actually based on a Sunday school class that I've been teaching at my church called Celebrating Christ in Every Season. And that does mean every season. It's a class that's going to last a quarter long. I'm not going to be the only one teaching it, I don't think. But we started off with uh, some of the darker stuff in the Bible. And, you know, We've already taught through the book of Hosea in uh, this class, which is pretty dark already. So I, I think if you approach this from, uh, you know, not this wide-eyed, like, woohoo, I'm going to spook people. I'm going to be all outrageous and edgelord and show you some dark thing in scripture that's going to make you clutch your pearls. Like, that is not the way to teach this. Is the word of God like anything else? Yes, it's kind of fun, given that sometimes Sunday school teachers and even commentaries aren't sure how to handle this text. But the point is not to outrage. The point is to go along with what the narrator meant by this text, which, by the way, is too long for me to read all of it. Uh, but I'm going to do a little setup, maybe, uh, just the, even without my Sunday school notes in front of me. The text for Samuel 28 is set in the days of uh, David, but actually before David became king. If you know your Sunday school, you know that in uh, Jewish history, uh, the first king of Israel was named Saul. Uh, he was an extremely chad sort of person as we say in 2023 meme speak, uh, head and shoulders above the rest, uh, very talented, like very well regarded. So God sends the prophet Samuel uh, on a merry chase uh, to choose Saul, who is now the bearer of the chosen one archetype. Unfortunately, after that, like Saul wins some victories and does really well, but then it starts to go to his head. And Saul ultimately becomes one of the most tragic figures in the Bible. And that's important to understand, given now that uh, Saul is moving towards his, uh, his very end. Uh, David, as we find in the early part of the chapter, is off <laughs> colluding with the Philistines, uh, which I find it interesting that the text just uh, outright admits this, because uh, you know that some of this has got to have been put together on the human side. Uh, in the wake of Saul's death, and as David is uh, is rising to power, not a member of that royal family, it's completely different. And so it could have caused a bit of a scandal. That's just my theory looking at this. But then you see then on the on the human side, knowing this is inspired by the Holy Spirit, but also knowing that people put these records together, uh, you see this eyewitness testimonial of what was going on with Saul. And it's kind of fun reading through this, trying to figure out, wait a minute, if it was only Saul and two other guys in the tent, and Saul's dead, then that means the two other guys, one of them at least, uh, must have become the witness. And it's fun to read through this and know that this is portraying an actual event in history because you don't get any speculation. Uh, whoever it is who's seeing uh, this supernatural apparition doesn't personally describe the sight of the ghost. Uh, he barely describes what the ghost says, although by that point you may get the idea that at least the audio uh, can be heard but all that said, uh, this is one of the scariest stories in the Bible, and it happens when Saul is trying to understand if he's going to win a big battle. Saul is terrified. He has wasted his life chasing after David, his, uh, his competitor, because God appointed David after Saul disobeyed. But now Saul is terrified he's going to lose this battle. 
God doesn't answer his prayers because God has gotten to very late stage uh, reprobation here and has turned away from Saul, which is a risk for some people, but probably not you, faithful listener. If you're in Christ, uh, God will answer your prayers. It just may not feel like it sometimes, but for Saul, not so much. God does not speak to Saul either in dreams or by the prophets or by any other uh, ways that he's given to communicate his will. So Saul's desperate. Uh, even though uh, Jewish law, Deuteronomy 18 and others, forbade the practice of witchcraft uh, in ancient Israel, Saul knows there's a black market out there somewhere, even though he himself has enforced that law. So Saul goes into the dark alley. He disguises himself. They come to the woman by night. So we've got this great setup here if you're making this into a spooky movie. Uh, verse 8, and Saul said, divine for me by a spirit and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. The woman said to him, surely you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her by the Lord, as the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, whom shall I bring up for you? He said, bring up Samuel for me. See, that's the Castle Thunder sound effect from the old <laughs> horror movies. When the woman saw Samuel, wait, what? <laughs> She cried out with a loud voice, and the woman said to Saul, Why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, Do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. I'll end it there, but uh, it leads to some very interesting dispute among Christians about what exactly happened there. I was going through it with my class, and I realized that I'm pretty sure this was actually Samuel. But it is obvious that for this woman, the seance is now out of her control. Something else, someone, capital O, has broken in and busted up the show. Uh, she can't do whatever she does with smoke and mirrors, uh, although I'm sure she was tapping into some nasty supernatural influence stuff. Uh, clearly, we are seeing the results of a divine override. Samuel is actually there, coming back from the grave somehow, bringing him up. In the Jewish understanding, uh, Sheol, the grave, was located down there somewhere. And uh, Christians debate about how exactly the afterlife worked uh, before Christ's uh, crucifixion and resurrection. Either way, Samuel's there. Uh, and we're also pretty sure it's the real Samuel because he doesn't give uh, Saul exactly what he wants to hear. Uh, he's not a demon uh, trying to coax him to believe that everything's okay. This Samuel is still a true prophet, and he passes uh, the true prophet test from Deuteronomy 18, uh, whatever he says does come to pass. And he speaks on behalf of God and he only reinforces what Samuel would have said already. Uh, verse 18, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out this fierce wrath against Amalek, therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines and tomorrow. You and your sons shall be with me. Well, it does happen, by the way. Spoiler alert, uh, you know, and, and then oddly enough, we, we actually have kind of a happy medium afterwards. Uh, <laughs> she She's kind of a sympathetic figure, and we'll talk more about this when I return back to the Sunday school, but uh, the narrative doesn't excuse what she was doing. It is absolutely against the law of God for her to do this, whether or not it actually does call up dead people or, or demons in disguise, but she actually feeds Saul. She takes care of him. She has compassion which is fascinating to me to see that that is her immediate response is an act of good. And after that, uh, you know, witch hazel here disappears from the narrative. And my positive fan theory is that uh, she went and rethought her life choices and maybe turned to Yahweh. 
Uh, but we, we just don't know. And because the narrative doesn't tell us that we can only assume that she went back underground regardless of what her spiritual state was. So I nominate this Zach as the scariest ghost story in all of scripture. Yeah. There is so much going on here, Stephen. And like you said, it, it really starts with, was this actually Samuel? Was this the ghost of Samuel, the spirit of Samuel, because he was dead and buried, his body was, you know, decomposing. So how in the world would Samuel, the spirit be there? Wasn't he with the Lord? Well, we see in the New Testament at the Mount of Transfiguration, Moses and Elijah appearing to the disciples alongside Jesus, who was temporarily glorified. So we know that there is a way for the spirits of the dead to appear to the living. And it seems to be happening here. But the interesting thing is only the medium can see him, but it it seems like uh, Saul can hear the words of Samuel because it says in verse 20, then Saul fell at once full length on the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. So it's the message that is the most scary thing to him. But you know, and maybe he was able to see him at some point, but he keeps asking her like, well, what does he look like? Who is it? Who's there? I think something else happened here though. I I think that, uh, so first of all, it is necromancy, is spiritism, being a medium, is any of that actually real? Like, do those have, uh, do, do mediums have actual spiritual abilities or is it all just fakery, smoke and mirrors? Well, as 21st century good materialists, we're very tempted to say, oh, it's all fake. There's nothing real about any of this. And I, and I think as Christians, we, we want to believe that. I, I tend to think that this stuff is real. Now, whether it's really ghosts that they're able to have a seance with or it's demons pretending to be ghosts, we, we could probably argue about that all day long. But the important thing here is that she seems very surprised to see Samuel. I, I think. God sort of overrode the normal course of events with this medium. And God really did bring Samuel there in spirit form, but again, only visible to her, which that is, that's the really compelling part. What do you think about that? Yeah. Well, the fact that she sees it shows, I think uh, that yes, she was tapping into some actual dark forces. I mentioned smoke and mirrors earlier, and I'm sure that there are some, you know, roadside psychics who oh, yeah. are just doing it for a show, you know, the, sure. the performing magician type who, who doesn't believe any of this and yet still shouldn't mess with it because it's too close to dark, uh, dark nonsense. But uh, here's a setup for our next episode, uh, 186. We don't want to be, even as Christians, acting materialists when it comes to the devil. We don't want to reserve all of our supernatural beliefs for, you know, whatever Jesus Christ can do. And then decide the only way that the devil works uh, his nastiness is through bad ideas, bad sermons, false doctrines, you know, greed and power and, you know, stuff that we can see and touch. No, the devil really does work his, his, his own horror uh, through actual dark supernatural influence. Uh, we'll get into that more in our next episode. So I, I think we can affirm at once that this medium was tapping into some dark, dark evil, but when she did it before, something else happened, clearly. If I was doing a, a spooky movie about this, if, if I was a movie director and a, and a faithful Christian, which is hard to do, but if I was doing this one, then I would show what exactly it looked like when she did this before. Maybe she saw nothing. Maybe she did hear a voice but saw nothing. Or maybe the thing that she saw wasn't a human. 
you know, maybe it was just a, a kind of an ink blot dancing in the air, you know, in which case that's my theory then that actual demons do get involved with this stuff, especially at this stage of redemptive history, because it is to Satan's advantage to deceive anybody he can uh, and mess up this whole chosen people of God thing uh, that God has been doing with that people of Israel. So I think she got into some dark stuff, but then yeah, divine override, I like to call it. Suddenly there's a human there and she is freaked out. Uh, the narrative captures that very well. Whoever describes this was actually there and saw her response. But then Saul actually asks her for a verification. What does he look like? He, she could still just be a really good actor. At least that's how I'm reading that. And But then she describes him accurately. She describes Samuel accurately. And clearly something Samuel did when he came up was indicating to her that this was Saul. Uh, I don't know if he saw it and she didn't uh, say that he saw it. Uh, maybe Samuel's uh, audio was muted there. <laughs> it's like I'm comparing a seance now to a supernatural Zoom call. Uh, that's a little goofy. But either way, she says, why are you deceiving me? You are Saul. That's that's her first response is not so much. Oh, this is a terrible ghost. Uh, things are out of control. But this is the actual king. I'm doomed. I'm doomed either way. I'm doomed from the spirit world and I'm doomed from the human world. That's what makes it scary to me. And yet also there's, a, also there's a note of sympathy there for her. And I frankly, maybe I'm reading this wrong, but I sympathize with Saul. Not because I've been there where he is, but I think we've all been to that point where God seems to be doing something that is going to humble us. And uh, we feel like maybe we're the chosen one, just like Saul really was the chosen one. And then it goes to our head and we end up uh, being humbled through circumstances, even if not the, the doom of a prophet. Uh, Saul's fate is extremely tragic and he falls into vengeance and madness. And maybe there's a little personality disorder going on there. We might say with our materialistic language now, but his ultimate problem though, was rejection of God. He, he only wanted God to tell him stuff when he wanted to hear it. And God seems to be like, nope, you're not talking to me when things are going okay. Like, why would I, why would I communicate with you now? Why would I answer your prayers? Uh, and that, that alone too is scary to have just God turn away from you. Uh, and then doubly to pronounce your doom, despite the sin that you're trying to commit against him. It is the exception that proves the rule. Ultimately, Saul does die and it is still tragic. And the narrative wants us to see it as tragic. David, the next King of Israel, reacts to it as if it is a tragedy. He's not gloating. Uh, David goes so far as to kill a man who is starting to gloat about it and who is starting to behave all pagan, like, you know, kind of a toady, like, well, Saul was the king before, but now this guy is the king, so hail King David. And David just dispatches this guy, just puts him out of his misery, uh, which is kind of a signal to the people. We don't do that with anybody whom God has uh, favored at one time uh, and is now somehow with him in Sheol. That is extremely spooky. And so that's why I think this is the scary one because of all those different uh, different perspectives we get on it. Yeah, I kind of sympathize with the Witch of Indoor. <laughs> Oddly enough, I think just because of how shocked she was that either this whole thing works, you know, because it, it, one possibility is she had never actually contacted anyone in the spirit world. Okay, whatever you want to uh, make of that for this context. Yeah, the, the dead, yeah, yes. Yeah, the mm -hmm. dead or, yeah, whatever. So maybe she was a big faker this whole time. And now she's actually encountering someone from the spirit realm. Like that would be freakishly terrifying. And, and she seems to really be, you know, put back by that. Now the, the other side of it is that she was 
very much in tune with the spiritual realm. And by that, I mostly mean demons. Again, I, I don't know if it's really possible for the spirits of the dead to talk to humans. I mean, so, so this is the debate, right? When scripture forbids necromancy, is it forbidding something that can't happen? Or is it forbidding something that you think is happening, but it's a counterfeit by a demon? Or is it forbidding something that can happen, although you may not know the difference if you're talking to an ancestor or talking to a demon? You know, that's the debate, right? And I honestly, I, I don't know because I, I don't think we're really given clarity on that in scripture, but her reaction is really telling, Stephen. It, I, I think she's encountering something here she's never encountered before. And it, it makes her truly terrified. And you got to wonder what, what happened to this woman after this? Did she repent of being a medium? You know, was she like Mary Magdalene, um, you know, being freed of, of demons? And then is she turning back to God? Was she like other people, in the, like in Acts 19, where there were people that were practicing sorcery and then they hear a story, they hear a spooky story of these uh, <laughs> wannabe exorcists who try to, you know, uh, remove a demon from a man by saying, in the name of Jesus, who Paul preaches and the, the demon possessed man says, well, I know who Jesus is and I've heard about Paul, but who are you? And then he beats them up, strips them naked, kicks them out of the house. And, and then this, the story about this starts circulating. And then there's these, um, I, I think they're Greek mystics and, and maybe some Jewish mystics too, but there were, it just says there were Jews and Greeks in this area. And there were people who practiced sorcery and when they heard this story, they were terrified and they repented of their sorcery and burned all of their magic scrolls publicly. And so, you know, I hope that's what happened to the Witch of Endor. I, I don't know, but I, I just really love the twist on this story that something way beyond her ability happens, whatever her ability actually was. I have a fan theory I just made up is that she was extremely new to this. <laughs> and extremely foolish, but also evil. You know, if she'd kept going, then she would have ended up in some really terrible, dark uh, entrapment there. Uh, and maybe she'd try this once or twice and nothing happened, but she put on a great show and everybody went home happy. And then this time, something definitely different happened and uh, it spooked her so badly that she repented and turned to God. Now, that's my fan theory. The, the narrative doesn't say. I think either way, I can't help but make a, a, an evangelistic appeal here. Uh, it does give us some signs for hope. Uh, if anybody happens by this podcast who is dabbling with what you would call witchcraft or just watch too many witch talk videos or anything like that, uh, first off, definitely get to our next episode, 186, uh, for more about witchcraft uh, in today's era. But even if you're into that stuff, like it, it may feel really edgy, uh, it may feel like you're tapping into something that gives uh, your life meaning, uh, maybe even allows you some control over the situation. But clearly, uh, this medium got out of control. Uh, the situation got out of her control. God has always been in charge of this. Uh, Satan has some power, but uh, the devil is God's devil, as Martin Luther said. And any of the meaning that you're chasing uh, is found better in Jesus Christ. He's the one who's given you those good longings, but our sinful hearts turn that toward evil. We want to take God's good gifts and our desires for good things and then run away from God and do it our own way. Well, this is what happened when this medium did that, and she is responsible for her choice, and yet her heart is still soft. 
I'm guessing, Zach, there's a lot of people getting into this who have very soft hearts, who are very tender hearted. But at the end, she now is ready to give meat, like valuable meat, uh, to, to hold almost a, a, um, a going away party for the king whom she fears will destroy her. But she sees that he is just as terrified as she is. And she's heard what Samuel said, and she knows this king is going to die. He's not going to be a threat to me anyway, so I may as well make him a nice dinner. I just I see that tenderheartedness, and my heart goes out to her you know, thousands and thousands of years later, and I do want to think that she repented. And I, I guess I have a soft heart too then because I see someone do something nice in the Bible, and I don't want them to go to hell. I want them to believe in God and then eventually to believe in Jesus. So we can only hope that that's what she did. And hope that that's what you, faithful listener, would do uh, if you need to. Uh, or if you're maybe you're an unfaithful listener, you'd become a faithful listener. But uh, even better, uh, listen to Jesus Christ. Don't listen to the spirits or try to. Hey, speaking of uh, going to hell, <laughs> that leads me to our second sponsor. All kinds of folks coming back from the grave in this episode. It's Brian Timothy Mitchell. Get ready for Almost Paradise, the sequel to the award-winning novel Infernal Fall. Daniel may have escaped the inferno but hell has followed him home. The devils that stalk him may not know about his magical stone, which can send them back to hell, but unfortunately for Daniel, there isn't much power in slinging stones. Meanwhile, heartless Charles is torn between saving his friend and serving his master. If that wasn't enough trouble, an alluring spirit has ensnared him with her charms. Then there's Bo, who is ready to catch a bus bound for heaven, but first he must discover why it's harder to fly than to fall. You can find out why starting today, October 24th, is the release day for Brian Timothy Mitchell's novel, Almost Paradise. Get those links in the show notes or at lorehaven.com slash podcast sponsors. Chapter two, you ready for it, Zach? Uh, the text that you bring to the table? Yep. So we're going to jump into Daniel 5. So open your Bibles and turn there. Now I'm going to read from a little bit different version than Steve and I read from the CSB or Christian Standard Bible. It's two versions represent. Hang on, Zach. I'm not, I'm not there yet. I'm not there yet. <laughs> I, I didn't know we were doing a sword drill. Okay. So yeah, there you oh, go. by the way, for, you know, if, if we're, see if we're a good pastor and we're speaking to the congregation, you got to say, you know, use the Bible in the pew in front of you. If you didn't bring one bit of an out of date advice, most people can get the Bible on their apps, but you shouldn't use your phone in church, right? My Bible, by the way, is page 1,220, if that helps you. <laughs> <laughs> that, I'm, I'm sure that's very relevant. Yes, yeah. yeah. You know, uh, I, just a, a brief aside, I, I've started bringing my Bible more, and I have a, um, I've actually had the CSB Worldview Bible. So every so often, there's these great essays. In fact, on that last passage, passage we read in 1 Samuel, there was a uh, whole article about uh, mysticism, spiritualism, and, and stuff like that. And so that was, that was a helpful thing to inform uh, some of my thoughts, but yeah, my, uh, my mom recently for my birthday gave me a nice, uh, leather satchel type book bag to take my, uh, my Bible, my notebook and other things to church because I was, I was trying to hold those with my coffee, which I'm sorry, John Piper. You I still can't like bring your coffee, coffee to, to church. church. Yeah, yeah. No unfamiliar spirits in church, <laughs> no phones, no coffee. Them's the rough. Farewell, yeah, but, Zachary Russell. Yeah, but I'm I'm trying to go analog at church, trying to turn. I think that's a great idea on paper. So yeah, just so, so it's not digital coffee. That, that's, <laughs> that's that's extremely that's, Christian. I'm not yeah. in the metaverse, but yeah. So Daniel five. Uh, I'm not going to go too much in the context here, but so let's just jump right in. This is Belshazzar's feast. So uh, verse one, King Belshazzar held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine in their presence. Under the influence of the wine, Balthazar gave orders to bring in the gold in the silver vessels. 
that his predecessor Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles, wives and concubines could drink from them. So they brought in the gold vessels that had been taken from the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, wives and concubines drank from them. They drank the wine and praised their gods made of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Uh-oh. Verse 5, at that moment, the fingers of a man's hand appeared and began writing on the plaster of the king's palace wall next to the lampstand. And here you can imagine Stephen's, you know, lightning special effects. I'm not going to try to do that. (laughs) As the king watched the hand that was writing, his face turned pale and his thoughts so terrified him that he soiled himself and his knees knocked together. The king shouted to bring in the mediums, Chaldeans and diviners. He said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this inscription and gives me its interpretation will be clothed in purple, have a gold chain around his neck and have the third highest position in the kingdom. So brief aside, there again, we've got mediums at at work and, and spiritualists. So all the king's wise men came in, but none could read the inscription or make its interpretation known to him. Sorry. Humpty Dumpty. (laughs) Then King Belshazzar became even more terrified. His face turned pale and his nobles were bewildered. Okay, I'm going to skip uh, the next passage. So basically they convinced him to bring Daniel in. Daniel's the good guy. He's the one who wrote the book. (laughs) Yes. The king said to him, are you Daniel, one of the Judean exiles that my predecessor, the king brought from Judah? I've heard that you have a spirit of the gods in you. And that insight, intelligence, and extraordinary wisdom are found in you. Now he's half right. Now the wise men and mediums were brought before me to read this inscription and make its interpretation known to me, but they could not give its interpretation. However, I've heard about you that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Therefore, if you can read this inscription and give me its interpretation, you will be clothed in purple, have a gold chain around your neck, and have the third highest position in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered the king, you may keep your gifts <laughs> and give your rewards to someone else. That's him being uh, winsome, by the way. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I'm, I'm gonna, again, I'm going to kind of skip through this next part. Daniel basically tells him off a little bit and, uh, and really just speaks some hard truth to him there. And, and then he gets to the interpretation. So let's skip to verse 25. This is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, mene, tekel, and parson. This is the inscript. This is the interpretation of the message. Mene means that God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel means that you have been weighed on the balance and found deficient. Paris means that your kingdom has been divided and given to the, the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave an order and they clothed Daniel in purple, placed a gold chain around his neck, and issued a proclamation concerning him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That night, Belshazzar, the king of the Chaldeans, was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom at the age of 62. Man, what a, what a wild ride through this passage. So first we have, uh, what is, in the Adams family, there's that severed hand, they call it... Oh, thing. thank you, thing, yes. Thing, yeah. yes. The thing would get the mail, and he'd pop out of the box. Right, so yeah. just kind you know, of I've little, always uh... thought about thing when I read this text, thanks for that. <laughs> <laughs> right, so kind of a helpful little uh, ghostly hand. Uh, very different than the floating hand that we see here. Right. And I, I want to point out something that maybe gets missed a little bit uh, sometimes. This was a physical hand. It was physically inscribing something on the wall. So here we see some 
rules of the universe being broken in a way that we can't quite understand because this thing literally materializes this thing materializes number one number two it floats and number three it can interact with the physical world so my personal fan theory here steven is that this was a partially materialized angel doing this because in genesis 18 we see three angels appear to abraham as looking like normal men and he thinks they're just visitors and he wants to uh, be hospitable he tells sarah quick Go make some bread as though they had bread machines, which I always find hilarious. Uh, and then they eat and then they go rescue Lot. And at, you know, at different times, they physically interact with the world. They pull Lot inside when he's being accosted. They slam the door shut. But they also do supernatural things like uh, cause blindness in all the men that are harassing Lot and his family. And then, of course, they bring fire and brimstone on Sodom and Gomorrah. So angels have this weird sort of hybrid power where they can appear as physical beings, but do these miraculous things or be a channel for God's miraculous things, however you want to think about it, that aren't possible for physical beings that are limited by physical reality. Um, but this, uh, you know, that, that's my theory that this is uh, an angel that just materialized a hand, however they materialize their bodies. I don't, I don't quite know. But, you know, that, so, but there's also three levels to, uh, Belshazzar's uh, terror here. First, there's the terror of a hand, and then there's the terror of a mysterious message whose interpretation he could not figure out. And then, of course, there's the terror of death that's predicted by the message and then fulfilled that very night. There's a lot of uh, parallels here, actually, between this and 1 Samuel 28. In either case, we have a king, Saul, the king of Israel, and then Belshazzar, uh, king of Israel's captors, or the descendants of Israel's captors. And then in either case, you have a divine override of natural events uh, in order to communicate a message of doom. And by the way, Zach, I'm thinking of an animated series I, I used to watch as a kid called The Greatest Adventure. It was actually by Hanna-Barbera, that Hanna-Barbera, like Scooby-Doo. Well, this one was animated a, a little bit better uh, than that. And I remember, though, unfortunately, and well, fortunately, I was young enough to you know, not really notice this any more than usual. But uh, unfortunately, uh, they, uh, the animators really like to show just exactly what kinds of carousing was going on at uh, uh, Belshazzar's party. Uh, they were particularly fond of uh, flashing back to those, uh, to those dancing women that, unfortunately, I still remember now. And they didn't have a whole lot of clothes on. It was a bit of a modern apparel they were wearing, but enough said about that. Uh, the point, of course, was to show how bad things were. Like, well, the really bad thing here is not that people were dancing in their skivvies, uh, but that they were praising the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Uh, maybe that's the same in your translation. What isn't the same in our translation, Zach, is my translation ESV here maybe cleans it up a little. Then the king's color changed, verse 6, and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. Is that the euphemism we're using for the phrase that you used? Uh, what was the he phrase? He soiled that, himself. He soiled himself. Okay. All right. So yeah. the, the CSB is very plain spoken. That's okay. What I really like so, about so it. So here, there's not even a commentary note that says, or he soiled himself, you know, also <laughs> in verse 28 and a half. Uh, it, uh, <laughs> it's just kind of the cleaned up. This is the PG version. I'll, yep. I, if, mm -hmm. if scripture means to say he soiled himself, then I'll take it. So. Translation advantage to the CSB here. Um, and yet, of course, the, the, these mediums, again, we have a presence of a medium, but in this case, these people can't even try. They're not even trying 
to yeah. come up with a fake version of the message. Oh, King, uh, it is uh, it is the God who has appeared, and uh, it's it's Marduk's hand, and uh, he means that your kingdom is going to prosper, and you're going to build by this time next year a palace twice as large and beautiful as this one. If I were one of the king's diviners, necromancers, and astrologers, that's what I would have said uh, to save my hide. And then I cracked earlier that uh, yeah, Daniel here being brought in. Uh, Daniel, by the way, the the commentary note here says he would have been in his 80s, which is why the queen mother here apparently knows who he is, but Belshazzar apparently doesn't. Daniel may have at this point basically been retired, but they brought him in, and Daniel's just not having none of this. Um, They're praising him to the skies and doing all this, and by now, Daniel is kind of maybe a retired celebrity. It's just like, nope. I'm I'm kind of done. Like this is a little <laughs> bit of a different Daniel back then. This is kind of my theory here. I haven't done the study in the original language, but back here, like we literally see Nebuchadnezzar do this same stuff when Daniel interprets a dream. Like Daniel's been here, done that. This stuff doesn't work on him anymore. He's a bit cynical, even though he's still very righteous. But yeah, verse seventeen: Let your gifts be for another, and give your rewards <laughs> to another. Away with that sort of thing. Daniel does not soft pedal it. Whereas before, uh, when there is another prophecy of doom to Nebuchadnezzar, who, by the way, in Daniel four seems to have actually repented uh, after his days of going mad and eating grass. Like Daniel doesn't want to tell the king what exactly the dream was about this time because he knows it's terrible. And it seems he actually kind of likes this guy. And by the end, frankly, I like Nebuchadnezzar. I think he's in heaven. Uh, He's got this awesome name. And uh, I look forward to meeting this guy someday and just, you know, hearing more about his plot arc. But uh, Belshazzar does not follow the same plot arc, although he kind of tries to in verse 29, right? He's he's in front of all of his guests. Uh, <laughs> we've gotten the doom. All Belshazzar can do is just kind of gaslight everybody. Oh, he's trying to bribe. I he think he's trying to, bribe trying to bribe Daniel's God. Yeah, yeah, but he's also trying to gaslight everybody else. He's, yeah. he's acting like this wasn't the worst possible interpretation of the message. <laughs> And so that too is scary. You get another king who dies. By the way, we're not told how, but sounds like a coup to me. I'm guessing that uh, whoever's plotting the coup may have been emboldened by this message. Again, just a guess. Uh, he was, yeah. was killed. So he was killed, killed, yes. So uh, accurate prophecy. Uh, Daniel's record is 10 for 10. And the, the hand, though. I do want to talk about the hand before we move on. Yeah. The, the, the animated adaptations I've seen of this, or even some Sunday school illustrations, make it a giant hand. As if it's like riding on the, you know, this giant, you know, 30 foot high alabaster wall or something. And then I, I like the greatest adventure version. The hand is kind of transparent though, and you can kind of see through it and it scratches out the words and then it just sort of drifts away. It's really, really spooky. And they got the spooky music playing. They play it right. But the text doesn't say that. I mean, it doesn't say a lot of things that we've theorized about, but it says verse five, immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. The text doesn't say that it was a giant-sized hand. It could have been a normal hand, obviously writing where people could see, but what if it was just a normal-sized human hand? Like, how does it end? You know, can, can you see the inside of it, or is it just sort of spectral right there? Or does it just cut off and you see a kind of block of flesh? Like, What does that look like? How would you do it with a special effect? But Zach, I'm curious, which to you would be scarier? A normal-sized hand writing this message? Or, or sort of a giant hand, uh, maybe more, more like a giant uh, Nephilim-sized angel. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I actually started thinking about something else. What was the instrument that the hand was using? Okay, so that, that's when you get just really into the weeds here. All the illustrations just show it's just a finger. Well, it said it began writing on the plaster 
So yeah, could the finger itself be doing that or could it be holding something? Either way, it's, it's very, like you said, it's very supernatural. It's spectral. I think normal hand or giant hand, either one's terrifying. I I don't think either one would be worse than the other. I think either way, supernatural strength. Yeah. Supernatural strength into the plaster. I do want to talk about some interesting parallels here. By the way, I do think the hand was holding something because I think angels can also materialize technological or at least items that they can use like chariot swords and so on. But that's a whole other topic. The interesting parallels here I want to talk about is that once again, we see a message of doom. So it, it wasn't just a hand scribbling or doing weird things and mysterious symbols. Like there was a point to it. There was a message and uh, it was not a pleasant message. And just like with Samuel's words, it, it, so it says uh, Saul was filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. Everyone there was filled with fear because of this message. So God didn't simply scare people just for the point of, of terror. There was a, there were words that he wanted them to understand. This is what's so different about the ghost stories in the Bible, let's say, than other ghost stories. And I'm, I'm thinking of a couple, but I, I won't mention them, where it's like this undecipherable kind of terror, or maybe they figure it out, but, but they don't really know what's going on. Uh, it, but the message also points to moral issues. So in, in each case, uh, the message is about disobedience. It's about idolatry and a resulting divine punishment. So not simply just death. You're going to die. First of all, you're, you're going to die and you're going to lose all of your glory. There's a reoccurring theme in the Old Testament that only God is glorified above all the other gods and, and, and all the other nations. And only God reigns supreme. There's a parallel to the New Testament too, where Herod is speaking to a crowd and they say, this is the voice of a God, not of a man. And immediately because he did not give glory to God, an angel struck him dead. And then he was eaten by worms. <laughs> and then people had to haul him out. That, that's a whole other crazy scene. But there is a divine agent behind all of these things. It's, it's not you know, an immaterial force. It's not a monster. It's the God of the universe that's in charge of all this. And notice that the contrast is that, you know, Saul goes in search of a medium. Uh, Balthazar asks his, his magicians, just like Moses kind of squared off with Pharaoh's magicians or Joseph squared off with the, you know, the other guys that supposedly can interpret dreams. So God is speaking through his chosen people to the the people of the surrounding nations, to the pagan nations, to demonstrate that he is the real God. He is the supreme God. And so, you know, we we always got to think about that, that that there is always that purpose in mind. And and we again we don't really think in those terms today because (laughs) what's the message of today? Coexist. Uh (laughs) which uh uh, we could have a whole podcast about that and, and tolerance and everyone's the same and it's all equal. Um, and that's, that is absolutely not the message of the floating hand. Well, turnabout is fair play here. Uh, you mentioned that God will not let his glory be stolen. And Belshazzar has tried to steal that glory. The inciting incident here is not just that they're partying, uh, not just even that they're praising the gods of gold and silver and et cetera, but that verse three, they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and they drank from them and toasted the gods with them. 
this is a profaning of God's stuff. And God, at this point, uh, because of not only his redemptive plan, but also just simple rightful vengeance, uh, is not going to have it. So if Belshazzar is going to try to steal God's glory from him, then turn about his fair play. God will steal the glory from Belshazzar. Uh, he may be doomed to die, and as he is dying, he can't even think, well, at least I've left a legacy. Uh, because yeah. God is going to take that away, too. And to Man. some extent, that, uh, that aligns with the, with the fate of Saul as well. You know, Saul is not only going to die, uh, but his army is going to lose, and his sons are going to die, which, by the way, is a reminder that Saul's uh, lineage is not going to continue like he had hoped. This is God, the, the horrible influence behind this, or horrible if you're on his bad side, taking the glory from you, taking not only your life, but your hope. Uh, anybody who thinks uh, that uh, God is all mean, you know, it, they kind of have a point, but the people made this choice first. God didn't just move in, you know, like we talked about in our Problem of Evil episode, uh, as an abstract force uh, to do bad to people. These people do have free will. They have freely chosen to do these things. You think Belshazzar didn't know where these goblets came from? He would have absolutely known. And even if he didn't know, well, ignorance is no excuse. Yeah, well, uh, and, Daniel hammers, yeah. and Daniel hammers him on that in verse 22. And, I, and actually, I want to say this is sort of a message of hope because he says, you have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all this. And, you know, and that's, we, we see a similar thing in Romans 1, where Paul says, even though they knew uh, the truth, they they did not glorify God. And, and Jesus talks about the light comes in the world, but people love darkness. So this is a choice that Belshazzar is making. And to anyone listening, if, if you don't know this God, that this God above all gods, you know, you can make that choice. You can humble your heart. You can glorify him because deep down, you know, this to be true because the Holy spirit, you know, testifies to you that this is true, but you can also read it for yourself. Don't just take our word for it. Amen to that. Speaking of Daniel, there's a lot of Daniel imagery uh, in the book that we're currently finishing in the Lorehaven Guild. It's called Koenig's Fire. And that leads me to our third sponsor, the said Lorehaven Guild, our castle in the cloud, a discord that you can enter simply by subscribing free at lorehaven.com. We will not only send you any updates you like about uh, new Friday reviews or articles or podcast episodes, but also your exclusive invitation to join the guild and also join our monthly book quests through the best Christian-made fantastical stories we can find. Koenig's Fire has been out of print for a while, but we managed to get our hands on some copies. But if you happen to have a copy, you can, a copy, you can still, if you happen to have a copy, that's even better. But if you have a copy, you can join our book quest even as it wraps up here in the last week of October. But we're also going to start a, a new book quest for a book that you can still get a hold of, and it's called Fox, a 2018 historical fantasy by Nadine Brandis, which is just in time for you to remember, remember the 5th of November. In our review, we said that Guy Fox's 1605 gunpowder plot gets a color magical twist. Really interesting story, delving into even an alternate history for some uh, church goings on. I, I spied a few familiar uh, denominations maybe hidden there uh, in the color magic system. That's a really interesting title. So join us uh, as soon as you can to join us for the Fox book quest and then any other book quest in the Lorehaven Guild, lorehaven.com, free to subscribe. Chapter three, Zach, you brought this one too, and uh, we haven't even yet pitted uh, which of these stories is the scariest. Maybe we'll have a little competition at the end. Uh, imagine there'll be no winner. Everybody wins here. 
Uh, but uh, you said, Zach, that you felt uh, that the account of Christ and what he did with the Sea of Galilee uh, was, at least at first, uh, also possibly one of the st- scariest story in the scripture. Uh, we have two parallel references here. Uh, what do you think if I go to Matthew 14 and you go to Mark 6? Sure. Okay. Yeah, there's uh, there's a little bit of info you get in one and not in the other and vice versa. It's kind of a typical effect you get with the gospel narratives. Oh, where we got here. Okay, so my text is Matthew 14, starting in verse 22. And you've Back got the Mark. ESV. Yeah, I think so. You know <laughs> what, fun. though? You got the Gospel of Mark, which is a little bit shorter and punchier. Yeah. Uh, and Matthew kind of uh, fleshes it out a little bit, as per usual. So uh, what if you go first? Mark sure. Yeah, please. All right. So Mark 6.45. Immediately, he, Jesus, made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. After he said goodbye to them, he went away to the mountain to pray. Well into the night, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land. He saw them straining at the oars, because the wind was against them. Very early in the morning, he came toward them walking on the sea, and wanted to pass by them. When they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost, and cried out, because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately he spoke with them and said, Have courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Then he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. They were completely astounded, because they had not understood about the loaves. Instead, their hearts were hardened. Okay, so a shorter, darker ending there, and yet I think it works, because it's God's word and it's all true. Just different perspectives on an event. Matthew, the first verses there, 22 through 27, are almost identical. Uh, with that text in Mark. But then Matthew takes a different turn. Verse 28 of chapter 14, after Jesus says, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. So that's the Matthew parallel, which leads me to immediately wonder, immediately, immediately, they use that often in these translations, how, how do we square then these different reactions? In here they're worshipping him, Jesus, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. But then in Mark, Mark's a little bit more of a dour note at the end. Their hearts are hardened because they didn't understand what went on with the feeding of the 5,000 earlier that day. Uh, did you have any thoughts about that, Zach? Well, this is one of those challenges, right, with harmonizing the Gospels, <laughs> and this could probably be an entire podcast episode. I think sometimes we, you know, Mar- like you said, Mark just gets to the point. Matthew and Luke give a little bit more context. John has a totally different angle. And so I I don't think there's a contradiction. It's just different focus uh, of the same event. Now, you know, what, what, all, what threw me off when we were preparing for this episode was that there's a similar event in Matthew 8 where Jesus calms a storm, but he's inside the boat already and he was asleep and they woke him up. Yeah, different event, clearly. Yeah, uh, but a similar thing is that they were terrified. They were more terrified of him having control over the weather than they were of the weather. Right, two different fears here. Yeah, but we do see a parallel back to uh, Daniel and, and then back to... First Samuel 28, that there's a hardness of heart going on, people not humbling themselves, not seeking after God, 
trying to do things their own way, trying to make sense of things without God, and then God showing up in a powerful way and people not being willing to accept it. Uh, so I, I think that's why he rebukes them as saying, you know, oh, you have little faith, but also saying have courage. <laughs> I mean, Jesus is full of truth and grace, right? So my guess is he said both of these things at the same time. It's just that Mark recorded one, Matthew recorded the other one. I think another uh, interpretation here, before we talk about the ghost part, which is why this narrative is here, uh, as opposed to some of the other scary stories in scripture about demon-possessed men, you know, we're going to the New Testament here. Uh, Mark says, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. So uh, it doesn't say their hearts were hardened like Pharaoh's heart was hardened or an unbeliever's heart was hardened. It just seems that here, like they're in an unusual, in retrospect, stubbornness. Uh, they did not understand about the loaves. This is the context. Like, why did Jesus feed all these people? What was that about? I don't get it. I don't want to talk about it. Uh, I'm too scared by the storm we've just been through. Can you do that while at the same time worshiping him, saying, truly, you are the son of God? I think so. Anybody who's worshiped Jesus before also can testify that we have our hearts hardened about particular things. Either it's a pet sin that we're really happy with or unforgiveness against someone who's repented and yet we just hold on to that grievance. There's a way for our hearts still to be hardened, but I, I don't think it's a reference to them being uh, unbelievers or, or even necessarily uh, doing any excessive sin here. Either way, we've got them giving us a, a little hint into uh, the mysticism of the times or, or any of the lore that may have been going on in the Galilee region. Uh, when Jesus shows up, uh, they, they immediately think, as it says in Matthew, where is it here? Uh, they were terrified and said, verse 26, Matthew 14, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. So, yeah, I was trying to find some featured art for this episode because Renaissance art has a lot of Bible scenes and it's in the public domain. And yet every one of the artworks that I found emphasizes the glory of this moment. The lights breaking through the clouds. You know, Jesus looks extremely epic. He's usually about to pull Peter out of the water. But we don't quite see this moment here represented where apparently everything is dark. This is a haunted small ocean, folks. You know, uh, if you've been in a sermon about this, that they will almost always talk about the weather patterns on the Sea of Galilee and such. But this is an extremely spooky scene. They don't see that it's Jesus. You know, they barely see anything. I'm guessing it's kind of like the chosen version of this, where you just see the sight line of a man on the wave in the distance, and then the lightning crashes behind him and illuminates this ghostly hovering shape. Why wouldn't you think it's a ghost? But that makes me wonder, like, what did they think about ghosts back then, especially because they're good Jewish lads and they grew up in synagogue and their rabbis would have told them. Uh, that there's nowhere between uh, heaven and or, uh, earth and Sheol. If you die, you go to Sheol, the temporary afterlife. Like you, you don't get to come back. But at the same time, they also would have heard maybe about this incident with Saul and the medium. Uh, you may have heard about this incident uh, with the ghostly hand that appeared uh, to Belshazzar, a king who wasn't exactly friendly to the Jewish people. And then even without those. I think the human imagination is going to follow certain patterns no matter what culture and time you're from. Uh, you're going to speculate about the dead no matter what the official religious order tells you about them. Uh, it is a ghost, is a universal human experience when something goes bump in the night, and then here it's even scarier than that. Yeah, it does make me wonder, how did they have that term? And had they personally seen 
a ghost before? And was it simple pattern recognition? Well, ghost quote unquote. Okay. But was it simple pattern recognition? Like, oh, I've seen something like this before. When I saw this thing before, I called it a ghost. Now, again, could have been a, they could have seen a demon. Uh, you know, Paul says the demons show up as angels of light. Um, and, and certainly throughout history, there have been religious figures who thought they saw an angel giving them a different gospel, which Paul warns us about, uh, because th- this is how demons deceive us, mostly through teaching, but also sometimes through terror. I don't think demons are always using the angel of light disguise. I think that sometimes demons use the scary ghost creature disguise. So could they have seen something like that before? Or Again, heard about someone who saw something. Yeah, right, right. And, you know, world word travels fast in an oral culture, right? So they had some kind of category for it. And like you said, Stephen, it could have just been from scripture. It could have been from those other accounts that we've read. You know, we have to remember this was a, a people that was much more supernaturally inclined than we are. And so again, our, our materialistic bias kicks in and we think, why in the world would they say ghosts? There's no such thing as ghosts. And, and I think we sort of Christianize that materialistic mindset to say, there's no appearances whatsoever of any sort of spirit whatsoever that can happen in the world. And I, I just don't think that's true at all. I, I think we, we see the total opposite of that all throughout scripture. Now, again, I'm, I'm putting ghost in quotes here. Okay. It's just interesting though, how Jesus uses this experience both to scare them <laughs> quite honestly and scare them out of their hardness of heart, but also to comfort them. Like he doesn't capsize the boat. He doesn't harm them. He helps them. Like he saves them from a storm. And it's just a really interesting picture to me, Stephen, because Okay, I, I, this is sort of a tangent. I, I've talked before about the wheel of time. And what is so interesting about that is that it's a, there's a savior figure that no one wants to ever see because he's going to break the world again, just like he's going to be this reincarnated savior of the world, the dragon reborn. And, and there's real destruction that happens because of him in, in the, the book series. And that's prophesied to happen. With Jesus, we don't, exactly see that okay but jesus said i've come to bring a sword to divide i i've come to save not to condemn yes but i will like people will be divided over me uh, families will be divided over me so there is sort of that sense of destruction okay now you also see that um jesus came as a lamb right he came as a baby he's coming back as more of a lion so so there is that sort of dual nature of jesus entrance into our physical world. But here you see a little bit of both of those things at the same time. It's a lion and a lamb. He is coming to them in the middle of a storm, and yet he calms the storm. He, he's coming to them, and I'm not saying he's ghostly, but he's coming to them in a way with the lightning flashing and the darkness and the waves walking on water. Like, what are they supposed to think? <laughs> like, right. they've this never is seen Jesus that. at his most otherness. Like, yes. Maybe the other account really is the, is the transfiguration account that you mentioned earlier, right. Zach. Uh, Jesus was fully God, also also fully human, and yet you know he's intimate, he's personal, he's relational, and yet there is something other about him that we cannot miss. And here, uh, that otherness is not to be missed. The disciples are reminded, uh, even to the point of maybe still having some hardness of heart. Uh, that this is something that, yeah, is going to break the world. 
things are not going to be the same way that they were, which in one uh, instance is very comforting. You know, all the suffering, all the death eventually is going to end. And then maybe you take that a little too far and you think he's going to kick out the Romans. You're going to be free again immediately. But then the other side is like, oh, wait a minute. Nothing is going to be the same. Like all our routines are disrupted. Like I can't help but modernize that and think, you know, that would be very frustrating to me because even though there's a lot of you know nonsense I have to deal with, there's a comfort in the familiarity, uh, even if the plan is horrifying. And Jesus is even scarier than that, which I think it makes sense then that they would have some hardness of heart, uh, even as they were also worshiping him. Because then may- maybe you think both at the same time, like this is God, he's really here. Uh, we're not just playing around, like this isn't just a man. And-, and yet that means that he is the ultimate boss. Like if he tells me something, I'm going to have to do it. And then there's this whole instance, of course, with Peter uh, that Matthew spells out uh, that was dramatized so well, and yet with a with a twist uh, in the the chosen season three finale, which nobody saw coming except for myself. I think I actually predicted it on the podcast. Really, really terrific scene that uh, gets into another uh, possible subtext of this. You know, Peter's struggle for faith, and yet also exactly this is Jesus at his most superpowered. Uh, other than the transfiguration account. What does this look like exactly? Jesus is practicing hydrokinesis here. We would call it, you know, if he was a, <laughs> it was one of the X-Men, you know, he's walking on the water. Uh, this liquid surface is not only clearing all the wind and the waves and all the tumult, uh, but is solidifying into a floor for him to step on. Uh, and there's some paintings actually that show what that, or one painting that looks like, a, that shows what that might've looked like from beneath. You see the underside of his sandals and the chosen actually brings that to life. It is absolutely magnificent and scary. And yet, yeah, I'm getting some chills here just thinking about what that must have been like to see. And then Peter, you know, the the uh, the, the first disciple here gets to do it, at least temporarily, uh, as an exercise of faith. Like Jesus wraps that power around him, you know, all from Jesus. And, and yet uh, it is somehow contingent on Peter looking to Christ for that power, not to himself, uh, this isn't like Jesus giving superpowers to somebody else. That's not what it's about. Again, it's an exception that proves the rule. Anything that we do uh, is through the power that Christ gives us. And that really is the point of all of these ghost stories is not looking to a medium of indoor for the power that we want in our lives, uh, not looking to our wealth and our power and uh, stolen goods from God's uh, house. Uh, in order to celebrate our own glory, like King Belshazzar, like don't be like Saul, don't be like Belshazzar. Uh, maybe be a little bit more like Peter here. You know, he at least gave it the old college try, and it almost worked. And then we we learn a valuable Christian life lesson here. But the main point is: look to Christ, not to ghosts, not to ourselves, uh, not to forbidden knowledge, uh, certainly not to Satan or demons who might be putting on a terrible show for us. But look to that prophet that was promised in Deuteronomy 18, the same text that warns us against this occult stuff, cautions us and comforts us as well, though, and says, look for the prophet whom God will send from among his people. It is him that we should follow. And that prophet is Jesus Christ. And here he is, even when he's walking on the water, even when he looks scary, uh, we are commanded to follow him. Well, to you, our listener, we hope that these accounts of ghost stories in the Bible point you to one important truth, which is that God is both familiar and foreign. He is not like us. He is very, very different from us. He's very other. 
At the same time, he wants to draw near. And there's sort of a holy terror that is correct to feel in his presence. At the same time, he is a lamb that, that wants to be near us and, and gentle with us. And so I, I think that these stories show both of those aspects of God. And, and we truly see those in Jesus when he, uh, he appears like a ghost that gets in the boat and uh, calms the storm. But we would love to hear back from you. So uh, here's some questions, and you can find these in the show notes. But we'd love to know, how scary did you find your first exposure to these accounts? Did, did these things unnerve you? Did they give you goosebumps? Uh, do you think Samuel in 1 Samuel 28 was a real ghost? You think it was uh, something else that was going on? And lastly, do you feel fearful or excited by the fear of the Lord? What do you think of that whole idea? Send us a note to podcast at lorehaven.com, or you can leave a comment anywhere you find us on social media. Meanwhile, over at lorehaven.com, we do have some scary stories there. As I mentioned, you can subscribe free to get those updates and join the Lorehaven Guild, our castle in the cloud on Discord. Last week, we had a new article from Daniel White IV, uh, specifically about how the crucifix shows Christ's salvation in dark, fantastical stories. So you enjoyed this topic, uh, you will really enjoy that article, getting into the symbolism of the cross and how, because of uh, God and just the, the wonder that the cross represents, is going to go wherever that symbol goes, uh, even if people seem to be trying to appropriate it uh, for some not-so-great meanings. The cross is going to represent itself no matter what. We also have a new article coming up uh, from Jenneth Dick called Disney Might Finally Learn Why It's Failing. Now, there is some scary stuff for you. Uh, It's a a whimsical, seemingly wholesome American corporation that seems to be putting out some completely uh, wicked messages. Uh, But now that they have had flop after flop after flop, uh, they might be starting to uh, get the idea that, you know, maybe this wasn't a good idea. Jenneth is optimistic about that, as I think Christians should be uh, when we see our enemies have any chance for uh, changing their ways. We ought to support that. Uh, Love believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And uh, I was reminded, too, even as I was listening recently to the soundtrack for Iron Man 3, that, man, they really did make some great movies superhero movies and otherwise i wish we could get back to that so i appreciate jenna's optimism we also have a great review of a bond of briars by aaron phillips Uh, almost every friday we can we try to review the best christian made fantastical novels that we can find new reviews coming up include steel fire from the gods in which uh, robots practice elemental magic and take over humans that's by clint hull our review is releasing october 27th before the book comes out And then uh, after that, we have our review on November the 3rd of A Ranger's Guide to Glipwood Forest. Uh, That's the new Wingfeather Saga spinoff by Andrew Peterson. We're going to have that review on November the 3rd. We'll have more reviews coming up uh, through the end of the year and then beyond. So make sure to subscribe at lorehaven.com and uh, find a great story that you can gift to a loved one or yourself this holiday season. Uh, Next on Fantastical Truth, in this darker holiday season, Halloween season, When people celebrate either evil or the Reformation or both, it may help to remember Martin Luther's reminder that even the devil is God's devil. And yet Satan is still prowling the earth and he is looking for souls to steal, sometimes in the ordinary ways and sometimes in the darker ways, even today. We know that some people, though, don't think the devil exists. And yet even some Christians may fall into the trap of acting like materialists when we ignore the threat of deception from real demons, from the real devil. And Marion Jacobs, author of a forthcoming book about fictional magic versus real magic, 
will rejoin us to engage today's real threats from real witchcraft. Well, if you're going to combat the darkness, don't use scripture as a sort of white magic textbook. Don't go looking for spells or stories or any parts that you can plug into your religious machine. The Bible has its own purpose. Even the scary parts in the Bible are written with an ultimate end in mind, not just to make you feel scared, uh, not just for a shivering good time, uh, not just to get back at someone who thought the Bible was wholesome, but in order to help draw us to Christ, push us away from ghosts and demons and Satan and all of those wicked foes, and especially away from the sin that indwells our own hearts. For those fears, we look to Christ, uh, the only Savior who is not a ghost, but who can pull us out of that roiling ocean and calm the storm. I take great comfort in that, even in scary seasons, as we continue to seek and find his fantastical truth.